This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the teachers came to Frederick. And the FAA released Circle to Land details. Also, Light Squared, they're back. And Cessna cuts production of the Citation 10. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guests this week had a great time um, talking to Tyson Weiss and Jason Miller. They are the co-founders of Flight. Oh, that is such a cool app. There's a lot of competition in that field, even still. I love what they're doing, and uh, those guys really brought it to us from the ground up. Yeah, really um, cool story, and so we'll get into that uh, a little bit later on. But first, let's get started. Um, really exciting week here. I think it was last week where we had a group of teachers we did that came to the office which we usually don't have so that was a new thing for that us that is there's there's a lot of education going on here yeah and it was um, hands on that's right so uh, we've talked about before the high school aviation curriculum. Uh-huh. This was tested in ninth grade classrooms around the country last year, public schools, charter schools, private schools, um, a mix of stuff. So a couple of weeks ago, this is going to go live this coming fall. Right. And uh, the teachers came to Frederick to get some professional development. They education. did. They, they had a hands-on presentation over three days, Ian, and they were doing stuff like making hot air balloons out of paper mache and glue sticks, cool. the Fun. kind of stuff that you would have in a classroom, yeah. really. Yeah. Uh, they made a wind tunnel. They made a wing. They did wow. all kinds kinds of hands-on stuff huh. to, to you know teach people about science, technology, engineering, and math. Yeah. And how about you? When you were in high school, do you think that would have, you know, garnered your attention a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, science to us was limited to, I guess we got to, what, in chemistry, you got to burn things. So you that did. was cool. We got um, to dissect stuff in biology. Yeah. That was okay if you're awake for that. Yeah, that's right. In physics, you do like little motors and stuff. But uh, man, to be able to build things and launch them in the classroom, and that's super cool. It is. And, and with aviation and all the STEM things that we're looking at now in today's society and all the opportunities and careers, this is really an important thing thing for kids. Yeah, absolutely. So they came here for professional development, so that'll go live. Um, it's about 80 schools around the country this year, right? which is super cool. And uh, at the same time, the 10th grade curriculum is being, being field tested. This That's fall. right. We're going to roll that out. So it's going to be a staggered rollout at one of these uh, initiatives per year, one of the grades per year. Mm-hmm. And then um, also to kind of round this off a little bit, the curriculum follows different pathways. Hmm. There's an introduction to flight, there's aircraft systems, pilot fundamentals, there's aerodynamics, dynamics. There are things that the uh, students will learn about that could lead to full-time jobs in the future. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that's all supported, part of the You Can Fly program, supported by the foundation. So you uh, you folks out there and a few companies, it's the reason that's happened. That's all donated. Yeah, and you can donate too. Yeah, yep. So check out the AOPA Foundation. Moving on, circling approaches, the bane of every instrument pilot's existence, except for, well, 
I don't know. Circling <laughs> approaches and DME arcs are about about the lowest you can get. I've these heard days. I've heard bad things about DME arcs. Well, how about yeah. when you left out uh, the ADF approach? Oh well, I, I don't <laughs> even think I'm just going to pretend those don't exist anymore. Okay, they probably don't very um, often. Yeah, I guess except for you folks listening in Alaska and uh, maybe other parts of the world. But here in the lower 48, now we don't really have too many of those. But that's actually going to be happening with circling approaches as well. Well, it is, but there's a rhyme and a reason to this. Basically, they the FAA released a policy that they're going to use mm-hmm. to, to select these uh, certain instrument procedures. Yeah. So circling approaches can be, there have been tons of accidents because of them. They're, basically, if you're not an instrument pilot, what it allows you to do is you, you do an instrument approach out of the clouds, mm-hmm. down towards the runway, and let's say it's a small airport. The FAA, every approach they build, they have to flight test, and there might be ground equipment, and so it's expensive. Yeah. They have to physically go out there and do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so instead of making approaches to two runways, They'll make an approach to one runway. Oh, so it automatically halves the the, the traffic, really. Yeah, yeah. And so the if potential. The, yeah. So if the wind favors the opposite runway. Oh, then what do you do? You circle to land. Oh, gotcha. And so it's creating a circling approach. It's an instrument maneuver. And essentially what it entails is a very low, fairly quick and tight pattern, downwind and base pattern to the runway. So they can be dangerous uh, maneuvering at low altitude. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's like, you in, know, you're in, in conditions that are not quite good in the first place. Exactly. And so because of RNAV, because of these GPS approaches that have proliferated, uh, the FAA, rightly so, I think has said, I don't really know that we need that many of these things anymore. But we don't want to get rid of all of them because they are needed in certain places. So yep. there's r- really some criteria for this, yeah. which is pretty interesting, that how they kind of balance the needs of pilots and the needs of particular geographic regions with the cost of keeping it going. Exactly, yeah. So RTCA, which is a, a government um, group, well, it's a private group, but uh, works with government to put out recommendations. AOPA was on this committee, the Tactical Operations Committee, uh-huh. that's been working for years to study these things and uh, put forward recommendations for how to get rid of these approaches over the next few years. But we're still going to be able to use that concept and those procedures for training, mm-hmm. but folks like me who are instrument students, mm-hmm. as well as uh, for other, you know, other uses. And they're not going to all go away, as you said. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely going to take some time and hopefully will be done in a thoughtful way. Well, another thing that I was just reading up on, that there's actually going to be a comment period for pilots to comment on the proposed cancellations that this could affect. Mm-hmm. So that might be good to, to note. Yeah, especially. If you, yeah, if, yeah, you, if there's it, one at your airport. Exactly. That you feel like is important. Now's the time to speak up. Yeah. Well, cool deal. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of speaking up, Light Squared. Now, this is going to go back a few years. Uh, some folks will remember that name. I kind of remember that name. It's didn't, a bit of a nightmare name. They were trying to to do all this kind of fancy stuff, and it didn't. It sounded like it might not be the greatest thing for pilots. Yeah, that's all I'm thinking. So you, if before you know the Internet of Things uh-huh. and 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 you know widespread Wi-Fi, this company Light Squared came in and said. We're going to build a nationwide network of satellite-based stations that will provide nationwide Wi-Fi. Gotcha. So it would be sort of like a cloud over the country for high-speed internet connection. Yeah. So great idea. The problem was it was right on the radio spectrum where GPS, well, right adjacent to where GPS is. And there were significant problems with interference. Like overlap. Yes. Like knocking something out, knocking out GPS when you're trying to do this other network. Exactly. Yeah. That could be, that could be dangerous. It could also be a safety factor involved with that. Yeah, absolutely. So AOPA at the time fought like crazy as did other groups. And, and, and won and basically got LightSquared's authorization to continue testing the, the network uh, revoked. LightSquared went into bankruptcy in 2012, and they are back. They're back. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, it, there's a new name, Legato Networks, basically formerly known as LightSquared. And, uh, and they're back at it, trying essentially the same concept. What would be the benefit for something like this? Are we thinking that in the future we'll have advanced connectivity and this could be something that would be helpful to people that are pilots or people on the ground? Or, or I mean, I suppose, but it's like, you know, when you look at how many Wi-Fi hotspots there are these days. Yeah. I, you know, I just don't even know if it's necessary anymore. I don't know. I mean, do, do you... It's well, like, I think that you you're right. Such great LTE coverage everywhere. Well, it's you're right. Like, That's a good point. Yeah. The, the world had, the world of connectivity has changed a lot in the last four or five years. Yeah, and it's more common now. We use our our phones and our iPads as Tyson Ways, you know, would tell you, mm-hmm. you know, that during uh, during the segment you had with him, that this is a commonplace thing now. We used to say that that was you know expensive and hard to do and hard to get, but man, everyone's got that connectivity now. So, yeah. do we need more efficient, better? 
more yeah. faster. And certainly not if it's next to the GPS spectrum. And, and the other thing I would say yeah. is like, you know, what would be the co- the actual financial cost? Yeah. Like, what would I pay to get that kind of light square coverage? Yeah. Or legato coverage? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Right. Slip there. Yeah, right. Well, what, but I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, same. But I mean, because I'm already paying too much money for my data plan yes. already. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So this is one that we'll continue to watch and update you on. But um, obviously not something that we want to be anywhere near the GPS spectrum. Uh, GPS obviously being a critical, both technology for commerce, for recreation, for security. Yeah. When you start talking about the military. Right. So, um, so yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one. All right. Moving on. Uh, Cessna, the speed demon. The speeds are the 10. The Cessna Citation 10. And the uh, latest iteration was, well, I think, the 10 plus, 10, 10, plus. 10 plus. And so this was like the super fast aircraft that Cessna had, a 528-knot, uh, 3,450-nautical-mile, 51,000-foot fire breather, says Tom Horn. Yeah. And uh, But gosh, it just really never – well, they sold a ton of them right at the beginning, but it never mm-hmm. really caught on uh, because of other developments in that, that jet uh, yeah. division. I think when you start to look at, uh, at the price, I mean, you're talking in the $20 million range. Uh-huh. You know, with with jets, a lot of a lot of it gets into like flat floor ver- floor versus drop floor and right. cabin size because it's like you know you and I aren't buying these things, right? But um, I get the flat floor and the drop floor. You want more roominess in the inside, cabin yeah. to, for business customers. If you're holding meetings or you're really trying to maximize your time, yeah, uh, that that could be extremely beneficial. Yeah, There's more you know more productivity. It's easier to work. Mm-hmm. So the ten, you know, its competitors had flat floors, and uh, so it was always. A bit overlooked in that way. Last year, they sold four of them. Yeah. Um, so it was time to go. And, I mean, the real story here is that the longitude. That's right. They they like yeah. they produced their own competition for this. They killed off their own bird with their own new, they did. new model. They did. And it makes some sense. You know, they got a, a new clean sheet design um, that they'll go forward with. It's a bigger airplane. It's a little slower. It is. It or is. Or 40 knots slower. It is. And I think the thing with the 10, it just you know, the whole thing was speed, right? Uh-huh. It just captivated people with the, with the speed. I mean— I think you might have mentioned it. You know, it went uh, what was it, Mach point nine three five. Yeah, um, really phenomenal. That's booking. So. It's faster than a faster than a Cessna one fifty. Yeah, that's by right. About ten. Have you yeah. you've seen one of these on the ramp? Right. <laughs> they're they're beautiful. They are. They're um, they are. And then one thing about the nacelles, the engines are monsters. They are. So it's like most airplanes. You look there's a there's a similar proportion to like fuselage size and nacelle size. I it kind of like. looks like a complement. One complements the other. Yeah. This one, the ten, I always felt like it looked like it had two rocket engines on the side. They were just massive. Yeah. You know, compared to the size of the airframe. So it, it's like it's like the Ferrari of the skies or yeah. something like that. Just super fast. Yeah. Expensive. Yeah. That's right. But Very the, cool. But airplane. the longitude's coming on board, and so that's yeah. uh that'll be the the next latest thing. Yep. Yep, that's right. So from saving twenty million bucks uh, to saving a few bucks at a time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> down like, to earth for the rest of us here. I can relate to this. Man, it's not too often we get to say the FAA has done something common sense, uh, logical, uh, looked towards the future and not towards the past, and um, just issued recently a whole slew of changes to Part sixty one. That's going to make training and proficiency and, and currency so much cheaper and easier and, and more accessible. Bravo, FAA. What do they say in the Navy? Bravo, Zulu? Yeah, some, yeah something like that. <laughs> Good yeah. job, FAA, for yeah. bringing, this, bringing the cost of entry down. That's what AFA mm-hmm. is all about, yep. as we know. And uh, this is a way to save $110 million bucks in the next five years with some of these changes. And AFA supported them all. Mm-hmm. So we talked, uh, I think, a couple, maybe a month or I don't know when it was. Well, I guess uh, it's maybe in April. Wow, it's a couple months ago now. But um, the FAA, you remember, stopped requiring the complex aircraft. Yeah, for commercial Commercial check and CFI check rides. Yeah, yeah. And, so well, you can do that in a tech- technically advanced aircraft. Yeah. And so really that was just foreshadowing this rule change, which now says you don't need. So one of the commercial requirements um, under Part 61 is that you've had to have 10 hours in a complex airplane. So not yes. just the endorsement, but 10 hours of experience. In right. A flying one somewhere. Yep. So you had to rent a complex aircraft like a Arrow or a Mooney, something yep. like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and really demonstrate good proficiency with it. Yeah. <laughs> with yeah. your instructor. Yeah, that's right. So no more. So now you can do that all in a TAA. But there's a definition of what a TAA is. Yeah, yeah, which is a, a slightly sticky. So a Technically advanced aircraft, which I don't think we have here in our own training no, fleet, to no, be honest with you. No, but we will soon. We're, we're, we're close. Oh, yeah, there's uh, new information. I like hearing that on the <laughs> podcast. 
But so the FAA's final rule includes a lot of changes. And uh, now Part 61 overhaul is going to take effect July 27th. So that's the end of the month. Mm-hmm. For some of these things, we're also uh, another good way of saving money here is that we're going to be able to use flight simulators, you know, training devices for a lot of our training. We'll be able to log those at more of those hours if we're instrument pilots. We'll be able to log that. That also saves us a lot of money, too. And uh, we didn't mention it yet, but sport pilots will be able to credit some of their flying experience towards higher certificate ratings. Yeah. That saves approximately 14 million bucks yeah, over five years. This is a, I think this is one of these inadvertent things, the way the regs were written. But as a sport pilot, if we were training and you were training only with a sport pilot CFI, you couldn't then use that credit as you went on to like private and commercial oh, and you stuff could like not. that. So yeah. if you were a CFI sport... You couldn't yeah. you couldn't transfer that over that well so the the applicant couldn't so like if I'm oh. if I'm uh, learning to fly in an RV twelve and my yeah. CFI is only a sport pilot CFI uh-huh. I can't go and convert that to a private ticket oh I did not know that yeah because I was thinking about getting my sport pilot instructor certificate yeah. to do a little seaplane instruction in yeah one yeah of those so you can cruisers. still do, yeah so you can definitely do that and now your students will be able to convey that to now more private pilot stuff so well, that's helpful too because yeah. you don't want to as a as student pilot you don't want to trash those hours and that time and that yeah, experience. Yeah, or start over. Or yeah. yeah. Um, now, the other thing I didn't mention that we are talking a little bit about saving money and, the, and using the ATDs, which is the aviation training device, mm-hmm. that takes effect in November, November 26th, right around Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So there's some time before that takes yeah. effect. Yeah, I think, you know, of all the things, I mean, the the 10 hours in the complex is really interesting, and I think it's going to, well, for one thing, it's going to shift the market on the older complex singles. It will, and that could be a good or bad thing. Yeah. Uh, there are, a lot of them are getting uh, a lot of use and a lot of abuse because that's up till now is all, that's the only thing we could do. Yeah. But for folks who, like at one time I had a Mooney and I had it rented out to, leased out to a flight line yeah. for that reason, because I knew people needed it for that complex mm-hmm. uh, endorsement. And that's the kind of thing that- um, It's going to be hard rating, making that deal these r- Days. Right, right. Yeah. So, it's, so I don't know what, you know, it could go both ways. Yeah. So that's interesting. But yeah, I mean, really, to me, I, I mean, personally, it's like the, the instrument currency in the sim is a huge deal because yeah, I think like, you know, just going out there. I, well, I take a couple of ways. If you do the training right, maybe you go into actual, you do difficult approaches or mm-hmm. something. Your IPC can be useful and effective yeah. in helping proficiency. But if you're just going out there knocking the same three approaches out every time you go up there, it's like you're not going to learn anything new. So to be able to do it in a sim and have— in, Oh, you, you can know, pick another airport. You can yeah. pick something across the country. Exactly. Challenging right. approaches. Right. Um, you can have incipient failures. Oh, right. You know, all these things that you can do in the sim that you can't do in the airplane. Well, it would be less than safe to do some of those in an airplane. Yeah, absolutely. In, in actual conditions. Yeah. So this is a really common sense thing, and I, I just think it's a, just a great addition. But now you still need the actual time in an airplane. You do uh, for the rating, but for the currency. So if you're going you to just get, use the, yeah, the, 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 but it needs to be a certain type of yes. training device. It yes. has to be FAA certified. That's right. That's right. Level. Which a lot of them are. So you can't build a Microsoft flight sim at home and can't say, hey, I'm current. You know, no, it's not going to be like that. Um, FAA's got to sign off on it. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, there are a lot of them out there at flight schools now. You can get them for whatever, anywhere from 80 to 150 bucks an hour. Um, it really does help save money. It's a and, great way to learn. And the other thing is that if conditions outside are less than favorable, um, or if the yeah. aircraft or the aircraft is down, which happens a lot to students, as, as we know, yeah. uh, then you can still get your training in. Yeah. So that's helpful. That is so true. I mean, it's like, you know, I need an IPC. Um, now, the rule's not effective yet, so I can't do this, but I need an IPC. Uh-huh. Uh, the weather's, We're supposed to have thunderstorms here tomorrow. Yeah. I can't do it. If if the rule were effective, I could hop in the sim, get that done yeah, during the day, no problem. And, and a lot of places in the country, like you were just talking about, when you have these weather systems that come through, it could be days at a time. Mm-hmm. And then also that gets your rhythm off as a student that gets your rhythm off or as your currency if you're trying to maintain your currency it gets your rhythm off too yeah so it's good That's to have right. good to be able to jump into sim get that going grab an instructor and maybe after hours or before hours that could even help too yeah yep so definitely uh go to the aopa website check out the story there's all the details you need to know the headlines faa cuts cost of training and proficiency so look at that all right. Want to talk to Tyson and Jason. These guys are really incredible, super smart guys. Um, love talking to them about how they came up with the idea for ForeFlight, where it's it's gone in all these years, and then look into the future, what they think is possible with it.
Great. Tyson uh, Weiss and Jason Miller, thank you guys so much for uh, for stopping by and taking a few minutes with us. Um, you guys co-founded ForeFlight. Obviously, most folks know about it, have heard about it, use it probably. Um, so tell us a little bit about how it got started. Uh, where did the idea come from? And uh, um, tell us you know, some of your, your interesting tales of the early days. Yeah, Ian, uh, again, thanks for having us on. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Um, so, you know, a little bit about sort of where we started. Um, both Jason and I had um, two independent projects. I would say this is sort of mid 2000s, 2005, 2006. Jason and his wife, Krista, had built a, a desktop application uh, called ForeFlight uh, way back when that uh, provided pilots access to airport information and, and weather. While I was in business school, I was honestly bored and got back into um, really, I won't say full-time development, but a lot more frequent development and started building out um, a website for myself that did something similar. I was working on my PPL, wanted to be able to get access to, you know, METARs and TAFs easily. And so I had a web project. Um, Jason and Krista had uh, their software project. And I reached out to Jason one day over the internet was telling him I was using his product and that I had something uh, I had done on the web. We should connect those two things together. And that began the beginning of our internet dating relationship, which <laughs> ultimately <Yeah. laughs> ultimately became uh, four or five. Huh. Yeah. I mean, from my, from my perspective, um, I had been kind of taking a break from flying for a while. I had actually started in high school and gotten my, my private ticket back then and taken a break starting in college and, was getting back into it and decided the best way to, to get back in was to jump in with both feet and start my instrument training. And it was a, a bit of a challenge because I was knocking all the rust off and trying to learn, you know, the, the basics of even landing the aircraft and I'm dealing with crosswinds and all that. And so I quickly decided I needed a, a tool that would help me make faster go, no go decisions based on what the METAR and, and the TAF would be uh, for when I was planning my flights. Cause I was, really concerned about having kind of the best possible weather at that at that stage and getting back into it. And when I heard from Tyson and, and realized how how much overlap, you know, we had between our two products, it was uh, a pretty good fit. I mean, it actually took us maybe a year of sort of chatting back and forth before we both decided, hey, we should, you know, we'd be stronger joining forces than we are separate. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's worked out shockingly well for uh, just having met online. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, we were we were originally set out to sort of build a better mousetrap, right? I mean, every, every pilot sort of group in the early 2000s used, you know, airnav.com, for instance. And, you know, we, we thought, well, maybe we can build a, you know, better ber version of that. And this was in 2006 before the iPhone was really even a thing. And then uh, the iPhone came out in 2007 and that, uh, that turned our heads and uh, started us down the path of building something for that uh, new platform. Hmm. Right. So when you, do that. I mean, in those early days, um, you're just sharing ideas probably and you're building something. I mean, Jason, like you said, for yourselves, you're, you're saying, well, right, right. what's out there? I don't really like. I think I can do better for myself. Where does that switch go from, oh, this kind of works for me and some of my friends who I share it with to, hey, wait a second, this is actually something that could be a business? Yeah, for um, for the stuff that, that I had been doing with my wife uh, before we really started this company, it um, it came because I decided, well, let's throw it up on a web page. Let's let's put a little PayPal checkout thing against it. I think it was maybe ten dollars, and let's see if anything sticks. And we started selling, you know, a few licenses a week or what have you. It was very small, but we realized that, you know, based on the feedback we were getting from those early customers, that you know what what one pilot needed for their training was, you know, generally pretty darn helpful for others too. And of course, they had plenty of great ideas that would that would shape the product and uh, and take us in slightly different directions. But you know, we've just found that exercising this stuff against yourself and your own needs is is a great way to prove out whether it's useful or not. And, and that that stands today as well. And, and when the iPhone when the iPhone came out, I think you know you know Jason and I were sort of circling around what we wanted to do together. Uh, and the iPhone came out and really sort of channeled our energy on that. We, um, you know, we'd been working on some stuff. We took some parser code that Jason had written and started parsing airport data and putting that up in a, in a web page. And then when the iPhone came out, it was like, I think it was like a Friday night or something like that in 2007, I went and picked one up at the, at the Apple store in Houston and, you know, opened it and unboxed it and slid to unlock for the first time. And you hear the click and the icons, you know, um, it's come amazing. forward 
we're like, oh my God, this is incredible. And so we, uh, we ended up I don't know, spending maybe a week on it or so, um, porting what we had already uh, done as a proof of concept on the web and took that same sort of PayPal payment in, uh, interface and just wired that up. And I think we got our first subscription like a week later and we were charging 75 bucks per year right. or something like that before you could even do apps on the iPhone. And I don't think it really clicked that this would be a business for, for years after that. I mean, it was always, for many years, it was a hobby business that we worked on on nights and weekends. We had day jobs. We didn't quit our jobs until 2010, 2011. So mm-hmm. I mean, years after uh, we had been working on it, it was probably the, the iPhone really that focused it on building something for that and throwing up a, a subscription page and seeing what happened. And we didn't have a business plan or, um, you know, any grand, I would say scheme. We sort of just fell into it by being at the right place in the right time and having set things up um, to be ready for it when it unfolded. So the iPad, obviously, when that was introduced a few years later, I mean, that's what really truly changed things. I think before that, I mean, my impression is the pilots mostly use the iPhone and apps for, you know, like you said, for airport data, um, maybe basic flight planning, but it's not a great tool for that, uh, whereas the iPad really, really truly is. So is it you've, um, to a certain extent, I, you've been a bit a bit lucky, I would say, with hardware, um, that that really has gone in your favor. So I'm sure that you guys saw that as as something that, that had huge potential. Yeah, I think there were a couple of key sort of transition points. One was when the app store itself got created in 2008, we, we got called by Apple. They invited us into their developer program. Jason and I started learning how to write Objective-C. We remember sort of screaming at the language, trying to figure out how to just declare a string. Because um, we were, we'd done a lot of development in Java and we weren't familiar with that platform. And so when when Apple called us in 2008 and said, hey, we're you know, building this developer program, that's when we started uh, learning how to do that. And then the App Store really changed things. And that gave us a mechanism to put something out on the market and get paid for it. And that, that was sort of the, one of the first major uh, transition points is we put an app in the app store and started getting paid for it. We made like $80,000 the first month or something like that. And so that's when uh, that sort of caught our attention. It goes, okay, well, this is now something beyond um, a hobby business that gets a few subscriptions a week or so. And then you're right. I mean, the next big inflection point was 2010 when uh, the iPad came out and we had fortunately just recomposed the product so instead of being a bunch of standalone apps and customers of ours who've been with us for you know over 10 years or so, remember, we used to have all these different apps. We had the AOPA airport directory that we worked on with AOPA. Mm-hmm. We had a flight and filing app. We had a checklist app. We had an airport directory app. We had a, a little map to display um, VFR sectionals, and we squished all those together into one app, made it a subscription. And then that was December of 2009, uh, and then we got invited again by Apple to uh, come into the iPad developer program and flew out to Cupertino and saw the iPad there, uh, worked on it um, before the iPad had released. And it was really, I think, April 30th of 2010 was probably the beginning of what you would say is sort of the hockey stick growth curve where um, the iPad with the GPS chip and the cell modem came out and that enabled us to put a blue dot on a map. And that was the thing that obviously got a lot of attention and started the beginning of this trend that we're still on, which is adoption of uh, powerful computers in the in the cockpit that everybody has, and that's been one of the big differences that we we wouldn't have, I think, foreseen is that this is now an essential piece of everybody's flight back. Um, but back in 2010, it was um, an interesting thing to look at. You know, was it going to be successful? And, you know, nobody knows. But yeah, it went back to sort of. April 30th of 2010, when they put a GPS chip in the iPad. Yeah, I remember back then when the iPad was announced and everybody said, oh, it's just a just an iPhone with a bigger screen. And then we finally got our hands on it one day and we we're like, wow, this is an iPhone with a bigger screen. Yeah. It was like perfect. <laughs> you know, like everything that people were kind of detracting, using to detract it was uh, was actually a benefit. It was, like you said, uh, almost tailor-made for the cockpit to the right size for an approach plate, you know, plenty big enough to use a map but not be unwieldy. It was uh, definitely fortunate for our business. And so what, uh, out of curiosity, do you have a uh, estimate? How many pilots do you think these days are flying with iPads? Yeah. I <laughs> uh, good questions. I looked at the stats. We don't have, honestly, good stats on that, but right. it, it, feel, it feels like it's 95%. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe lower than that, but, um, it's, it's a lot. 
Uh, and if they're not using it in the cockpit, um, they may be using it, um, you know, outside for pre-flight planning or whatnot, but yeah. pretty high percentage. Yeah. So how do you guys, you know, you've had this business that has grown obviously exponentially because, um, because of adoption of the technology and, um, and you've refined the application over the years. And so you've, you've reached a point now where you have a sizable chunk of the pilot population that's using it. Um, so where do you go from here in order? I mean, I, I, my sense is that you guys are the biggest, you know, you have the biggest share of the market. And so growth wise, how do you, how do you continue to expand that? Where do you go from here? We've been fortunate that, um, you know, we started off building a product that worked for us as individual pilots and it worked for others as well. Uh, and that started off in the personal market. Uh, then we got pulled into business aviation by, you know, companies like Walmart and fortune 500 flight departments that called us and said they wanted to start using it. And so, that began our foray into business aviation, um, which we've been investing a lot in over the past few years. We got pulled into the military by you know, General Ray Johns out in uh, Air Force uh, Air Mobility Command back in 2010, 2011, when the Air Force was buying 18,000 iPads, and we've continued to um, serve that market. We got pulled into the helicopter market. We're here in Houston, Texas. There's a lot of you know, oil and gas transport businesses that fly folks out to the rig, so that's how we got pulled into energy and, and, and the helicopter market. And then education as well, flight training, and then ultimately uh, commercial through our partnership with uh, Jefferson. So each one of those markets is growing at different rates. I mean, business aviation has been a really high growth market for us over the past couple of years. And that's primarily been driven by our investments and you know, much more advanced flight planning and things that help uh, professional pilots out. You know, on the military side, we continue to grow that business uh, pretty substantially. Um, you know, if I think about, you know, the, the answer to your question about what percentage of pilots use iPads? The answer depends on the segment. You know, personal, it's highly penetrated. Uh, military, that's still a lot of headroom there. Commercial is heavily penetrated. But some of these areas are either growing and it's still adding the iPad to begin with, or they're buying more advanced functionality from us as we introduce more capability. So we've been growing by a segment, so personal, military, business, et cetera. We've been growing by um, adding uh, new capabilities that are more expensive than the, sort of the essentials packages. Uh, and then we've been growing geographically as well. So we entered into Canada a few years ago and have a, a good market share there. And we just entered into Europe this summer. So those sorts of things have been you know, helping us move beyond our comfort zones and also tackle uh, new markets. So looking back to, to those early days in like 2007 and where we are today with synthetic vision and um, all the amazing advancement, that, that we've seen in a relatively short time. I mean, I, I'm sure you sat there, you guys, you know, with your with your virtual relationship and, you know, type back and forth. It's like, oh, it'd be so great if we could do this or, you know, if it would do that. And it's, so it's like what – when you think about those early ideas you had or that early vision you had, what has surprised you about what's coming along and come along since then? And and, um, and what did you – when you think back to that, what are some of the things you thought would happen that, that maybe just haven't ever materialized? Mm. I mean, I can think of some of the features that we uh, that we brought that really took off much faster than we expected. And I would say the first big one in my mind was uh, georeferenced approach plates. So, you know, we had seen that on some of the panels um, previously, but bringing it to a tablet where people in any aircraft could make use of it was huge. And um, the customer uptake of that was extremely fast and it was shockingly, shockingly fast. And, you know, it's easy to see why, especially in hindsight, how valuable that is, but it, it was surprising. I would say in terms of things that we, like, have not been able to make happen yet, honestly, I, I struggle with that because I feel like, well, I guess on one hand, we've probably always had pretty um, pretty sensible appetite and could, you know, we, we would actively tackle stuff we knew we could take to fruition. Um, we've always been very focused on shipping features. and not necessarily on doing a lot of exploration that we don't yet feel like would pan out. So sometimes things take longer than we want. A lot of times doing the UI, uh, the user interface and the user experience development of how a feature should work ends up delaying something a year longer than we really wanted it to be just because it ends up being tricky. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, we've been able to, to release all of the different things that we've really worked on. Mm. Some of the things that emerged that, I don't think we could have predicted or imagined would have been as sort of successful or game changing as they have been uh, include one first, you know, there's a device in every cockpit, right? So, you know, when we 
built some of the early functions, it was, oh, there's, there's stuff in, you know, either established portables or in panels that we can now bring onto a device that nobody's uh, ever had in their airplane, right? Like, you know, think about synthetic vision, for instance. It's like, okay, well, you know, those are in high-end panels, but nobody ever had that on a portable. Or ADSB in-flight weather, right? So a lot of us flew with in-flight weather, you know, prior to the iPad being around and prior to ADSB coming into existence. And ADSB was really a major uh, driver of uh, adoption of devices, iPads, and, and portable accessories because we all now had something we could get that was subscription free and bring it at the cockpit and fundamentally transformed the experience, right? Like when I soloed my 152 cross country the first time, I mean, I, I got into the airplane with whatever I had scribbled onto a notepad or my flight planning uh, sheet. And like, that was it until I got the ATIS or the AWOS, you know, on the, on the other end, I can remember just going over on like, you know, 75, hundred nautical mile cross countries and going, gosh, I wonder what the weather's going to be like on the other side. That is, like it's for it's so foreign to me to think about that now, but that was something that we hadn't imagined uh, would be available. Then you take things like you know accelerometers and 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 sensors that can give you pitch and attitude in a portable device. Right? Okay, well that now brings something that used to be in a you know, certified avionic and has brought it down market. So what has been surprising to me is how much um, we can put on these devices that used to only be in the realm of installed or certified avionics. Those are some of the big drivers that were a big surprise to us that we've fortunately invested a lot in and uh, built a great experience around. And that continues today, which is, you know, ADSB devices get cheaper and cheaper, they get more accessible. And when I think about a new pilot coming to market today, it's like, you know, you go to your flight school, you get your training kit, you get your headset, you get your ADSB device, you get your app, right? And like, that's, sort of the four legs of the stool that you begin to learn to, to fly with today. Mm. As far as things that haven't emerged that I thought might have come sooner or more quickly is uh, connectivity in the cockpit. Like, And, when, and I, I don't mean like connectivity between the iPad and the panel because that's there today, but I mean like internet and the airplane. Mm. That's still something that is really reserved towards you know business aviation aircraft and above. Uh, and in some places around the world, uh, there is more internet in the cockpit. Like, you know, Australia has a solid network that is more uh, or that has better reception when you're in the air. So pilots there are flying around with strong LTE connections, but we don't have that as much uh, in, in the U S but uh, that's one thing I w- would have expected to maybe develop a little bit faster is true, you know, broadband uh, up to the, uh, up to the light end of GA airplanes. Hmm. Um, and Jason, you were talking about, as you guys have done development, one of the challenges is the user experience. And it seems like, especially with the, I mean, any, any application, obviously, but especially with the iPad, where design with Apple is a fundamental core value. So how do you balance that push to get more and more and more out of the app without just completely overloading it and making it to the point of unusable? Yeah, a big piece of that is uh, automation. Uh, So if we just keep tacking more buttons onto the screen and keep asking questions of of the pilot uh, over and over again, obviously it's going to get out of hand really quickly. And so we, we take a lot of care in attempting to do the best we can at volunteering information within the app at an appropriate time based on GPS and the other information that we have about your flight. And also trying to weave in a feature into something that's, that's already existing whenever we can so that we're not adding more bulk uh, and more overhead to the, to the UI. But as the app gets bigger, naturally, it's getting more complex. It's got that much more capability, stuff we could have never imagined even you know, five years ago. That challenge has become, honestly, the, the biggest difficulty in our development cycle. Previously, it was actually just getting the code written, making sure the algorithms did whatever we needed and so forth. Now we're starting to find that that, that stuff has become the simpler piece relative to this design component. And so we have a whole team of, uh, I don't know, roughly five or six people right now that their full-time job is dedicated to to that very problem just because it is it is a tough one. Some, some of the ways, Ian, we've introduced new features is we have this neat little pattern that we use that asks users to opt in to a feature because what we find is that if we, if we put something out there, you know, people may or may not read the release notes. We err on the side of most people not reading the release notes because your apps mm-hmm. get updated automatically now. And so they just they just get updated and, and you rely on or your way of finding out information is either you know, word of mouth or you happen to read an email or you, maybe you see something on social. And so 
you know, communicating what's new is a real challenge. And that gets to some of the more sciencey stuff we've got to work on to diffuse that knowledge. But for example, in the next release, we have this um, new night mode that's coming out. So once the app knows that it's transitioned into sunset, and it knows that based on your GPS position and the time of day and and whatnot, uh, you'll get a little prompt that says, oh, hey, we have this new little night mode feature. Would you like to enable it? And so the user can just hit activate. And all of a sudden, if it's at night, the charts will invert to dark on light on dark. The app theme will switch to dark. And that's a way of opting in someone to a feature and communicating uh, its awareness. When we introduced track logging years ago, after you finished your first flight, a little alert popped up and said, oh, hey, we noticed you finished a flight. Would you like to record your future flights? And so a user hit accept or cancel, and then that would start their automatic logging. And so we use that as one of the patterns to introduce new features in context, right? So as the user is, is using the application. So that's just one of the ways we look at progressively introducing things in a way that uh, is, a, is a bit more subtle than populating the screen with all sorts of, you know, oh, here's what's new and arrows pointing to all these different things that may interfere with your flight when you're just trying to get airborne. Yeah. So you mentioned a few things you're working on. I know you guys just had another big release uh, just just recently. So what what were some of the things that came out in that one? One of the big recent features we did was uh, something we call Trip Assistant. And that is actually on our web app on plan.forflight.com. And you can go in there and basically plan out an entire trip from door to door. So you start at your house or at your office, wherever you need to begin your trip from, put the address in, choose an airport that's appropriate, that's closest to there, and then tell the system what what physical address you want to go to, say a, a building downtown in some other city. It will prompt you for uh, airports that make sense for that, give you enough metadata, enough you know information about those airports so you can pick and choose which one's the best. And then it gives you a door-to-door time, including delays on the ground for you know pre-flight or post-flight uh, things, and taking into account the traffic time for whatever drive you need to do on both ends mm-hmm. to um, give you a, a perfect picture of when you need to leave your house in order to, say, get to a meeting on time. One of the trickier things it handles through that whole process is the time zone changes. Uh, that's something that my brain's never been good at, um, and it just kind of hides that from you and, and deals with it. Hmm. So that one's a, a cool new feature. Another that we released recently was an entire revamp of the UI and UX around searching in the app. So previously, if you were on the airport's view and you went up to the search field and started typing in a search, it would really only search for airport data. In there. And if you were trying to, say, build a route or look up a tail number to, to see, uh, do some flight tracking, that wouldn't really work. And so if you went to the maps view and, and tried to find an airport, you would get kind of a different view of the airport. And so what we did was we took a step back and decided that it was time to refactor or change up that whole searching pattern so that it was much more unified. And so we made more of a universal search where the tab that you're on, be it airports or maps, is simply used to prioritize the search results, but we still allow you to search for all of the different types of data in the system. And we added some extra smarts around things like procedures. So if we, uh, if you type in ILS or RNAV, it will use the context of other parts of the app. It'll say, it'll, it'll realize that you were looking at a particular airport recently and prompt you for an RNAV that goes into that airport and so forth. So we added some some extra functionality around that to to enhance it. Very cool. Yeah, on the on the search feature, you know, we um, uh, Coast, the U.S. Coast Guard is one of our largest customers, and their entire fixed wing and helicopter fleet uses us. And we had a little rain event here in Houston last uh, <laughs> last yeah. year. If, uh, if you guys were watching the television, mm-hmm. and um, we were on the, we were on the phone with the Coast Guard the Sunday after Harvey hit. And one of the challenges was getting to street addresses. And in particular, the street signs were underwater. Hmm. So helicopters, usually in urban search and rescue, would hover down and be able to find sort of where they are by looking at street signs. Uh, well, that wasn't, uh, that didn't exist during Harvey, right? So we worked with them to sort of come up with a solution to that problem. So we worked in a number of things into that search feature. Something else that we've done a lot recently is um, there's some areas we've been really investing in, obviously flight planning. We've poured a, a ton of energy into that. Uh, the other is mapping. And so in the, in the last release, we changed up the way that airspace labels are presented. And our lead developers on that came up with a re- really novel way to pin 
airspace labels on the borders of airspaces. So they wrap really nicely around the curves of the airspaces. Because as we're building out you know, digital mapping, the challenges we run into are really different than when you know, the FAA, for instance, would build a sectional chart and they would have a single uh, scale that they were working on, right? So they had one sheet of paper and say, mm-hmm. we need to just, we, we need to put everything on this uh, sheet with this size. Well, when you're dealing with a small tablet that can, you can zoom in, uh, in and out on quickly and then pan and zoom, you've got all these challenges related to how you get data on screen and position everything hmm. uh, intelligently. And so that was a thing that we invented and deployed in the latest release. And that was really driven by Europe because Europe airspace is a lot more complicated than the U.S. And so the problem was exacerbated there. And then we improved the aesthetics and the styling of the map um, so that you could tell if you were zoomed in, you know, is the airspace border that you're looking at, um, are you inside of it or are you outside of it? Because if you zoom in on a map on your tablet, you might see a couple lines there on the airspace. You're like, well, which which side is this airspace on? Am I inside of it or outside of it? So those are some of the things that uh, we did on the, on the mapping side. Uh, and mapping, we're just continuing to invest a lot in because it's just fundamental to planning and navigation. And I think we're in this period of transition between where we used to rely on, you know, sectional charts and things like that to fully digital displays. And we've got a lot more information yet to put on the map. And so we're having to tackle some of those technical challenges of uh, putting uh, more info in. There's also some subtle things that we did that are really helpful. And this gets towards sort of a larger challenge for us as an industry. And that is with respect to notices, right? And, now in ForeFlight, if you pull up an airport and, you know, Jason built this feature himself and it was one of the features was after I went to an airport, we were doing some flight training and, you know, there's an airport closed. Well, we wanted to more prominently highlight that on the airport view. So now a little red banner will appear in an airport when, the, when there's an airport closure or a runway closure that lets you know about that. And then um, inside of various views in ForeFlight and the airport views will let you know if there's something uh, problematic with a runway. Um, but really surfacing more NOTAM data. And then we've added a ton of different alerts. Like now if we detect you're close to top of descent, we'll show you a little ATIS pop-up that uh, displays the ATIS information for your destination airport. Um, we have you know 500-foot AGL call-outs. We have transition altitude call-outs so that you can remember to do your transition checklist if you're flying into the flight levels. Gosh, and, and so on. So lots of little little enhancements that present information to you at the right time. So a lot of those are safety related. And uh, I suppose that, you know, when you started especially looking at ADSB data, the, the safety implication was significant and you knew that. But one thing I'm fascinated by is this idea of, of the app being a lot more than a planning tool and, and being a true safety tool. And I know you guys get uh, reports from pilots that have basically said you're your app, your software, it saved my life. So that, that's got to be a really incredible thing to, to hear when it's obviously a completely unintended consequence of, of why you started this in the first place. Yeah, that, that's huge. It really, it really hits home for us. I mean, half of our company, at least half, are, uh, are pilots. And um, they, they all, all of us understand that, you know, that type of situation. We had a, a guy, we've had multiple people write in with electrical failures where, their entire panel went dark and it's at night and all they've got is their iPad. And, you know, not only is that helpful as a, as a flashlight in the cockpit, but of course it's giving you critical navigation data and, and even pitch and bank. Um, we've had multiple people write in about that, just, uh, you know, saving their bacon as far as they were concerned. We mm. had one guy that had an engine out at night and, you know, there was plenty of luck involved in this, but he, uh, he managed to find a road to land on, that really wasn't wasn't really lit uh, just by using our map, and so wow. when that happens, it uh, it makes us reflect. And it makes us you know just just proud that we know we're we're having a positive impact. Um, yeah, we've had um, we had a military pilot that went hypoxic um, and had a system failure, and uh, four flight was all he had to navigate with after he regained consciousness. Um, we had a father and daughter who were flying into San Marcos in Austin, uh, IMC. And when he went to put the gear down, the panel went out. Uh, and so all he had was um, his Stratus, his iPad, and basically converted a, an ILS approach into a localizer you know, off of the iPad. Um, mm-hmm. That was all he had. And he, he wrote and said, you know, I'm, I'm hanging up my wings uh, but I just want to let you know that um, I and my daughter are here today because we had, you know, your application in, in the cockpit. So 
you know, those are moments that really tug at our heartstrings. And then when we hear things like, you know, improvements in the in the, in the rates of in-flight weather-related incidents, we've sort of realized that, you know, we are making a really big impact in uh, people's outcomes. Um, and so that's hugely satisfying to us and the team. And, you know, if I look back 10 years ago, that wasn't something that we had imagined even playing a role in. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah that, that was probably um, when I reflect on the last 10 years, I think that's the thing that surprised me the most is the impact on safety that iPad and, and in-flight weather and, and traffic data has really had. I mean, it's not, you know, it's unknowable how many times we've helped people sort of prevent a, p- a possible incident before it even happened. But I'm sure it's a, a huge number because having this data knowing there's a big hill in front of you that you need to avoid, knowing there's a tower over here. And even uh, like a simpler aspect of, you know, for folks that fly a lot of different airplanes with different uh, panel configurations, having an iPad uh, that you take with you that's always going to be familiar to you and always giving you the, the same you know, information in, in a way that you're used to has got to at least free up some brain cycles and make you that much safer as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Guys, well, thank you so much for the time. And um I, uh, I think we're excited to see what's what's next on the horizon. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Ian. All right, we'll see you. All right, David. So you're. I'm going to put you on the spot. You're you're an iPad user. I am. What app do you use? I use I use ForeFlight. Do Tyson you? and Jason would be happy. Um, I love the fact that um, that it's available at my fingertips. I have an iPad Mini, mm. and it really nice. does help me out a lot. And uh, it, it, you know, anything that we've talked about this before, Ian. Anything to me that increases safety uh, and the awareness of pilots is I'm all I'm all for that. Yeah. And synthetic vision, something like that, and have that in your back pocket if you needed it. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah. So have you tried the full iPad, or have you only ever used the iPad Mini? I used the full iPad a couple of times, but you like the Mini better i do hmm. yeah well it fits better on my thigh and um, that's a, how i use it i strap it to like a little knee board yeah and i prefer it that way i do like the the um aspect that you can if you put it on the notes uh if, if you click on the notes in four flight there's mm-hmm. a, a way that you can just actually draw notes with your fingertip yeah right sure and it's pretty darn helpful when you're getting like uh you know getting a clearance to land or if you're writing down your craft something yeah. like that yeah it's pretty helpful Very so i cool. like that no i do like the ipad i like the mini versus the big one because mm. the yoke doesn't hit as much. Very cool. All right. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>